Welcome to Outside In, a one-half-hour interview and conversation about public policy between me, Roger Kahn, and one of the many interesting people visiting the Crested Butte and Gunnison Valley this summer to share their knowledge, insights, wisdom with people in our community. Our guest today is Charles Charlie Sykes. He was one of Wisconsin's top-rated and most influential conservative talk show hosts. Sykes is also the author of nine books. His most recent, How the Right Lost Its Mind, which was published by St. Martin's Press and it was released in October of 2017. He's a familiar face and is currently an MSNBC contributor a contributing editor at the Weekly Standard and the host of the magazine's Daily Standard podcast. In 2017, he was co-host of the national public radio show Indivisible. He's an outspoken critic of the Trump administration and of what he calls the conservative alternate alternative reality media. Sykes has written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Politico, Newsweek, Time.com, Salon, USA Today, National Review, and many other national publications. He's appeared on Meet the Press, The Today Show, ABC, NBC, Fox News, CNN, PBS, and the BBC, and he's been profiled on NPR. He's also spoken extensively on university campuses. Charlie Sykes lives in Maquan, Wisconsin, with his wife and three dogs. He has three children and two grandchildren, and he doesn't look a day old enough to have grandchildren. (laughs) And with that said, Charlie Sykes, welcome to Outside In. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you. It's uh, great to be here in Crested Butte. Listen, um, you're in Crested Butte to talk to the Public Policy Forum, and you're doing that tonight. Uh, Your topic is... Uh, will the uh, we survive the Trump administration? And I'm going to start with that mm-hmm. because that's a, a very important question in my mind, and particularly given some of President Trump's most recent maneuvers relative to North Korea, relative to Iran, uh, internationally provocative kinds of actions, which given our nuclear arms race or that had been diffusing for a while and is now perhaps reaccelerating. Will we survive as a planet? Well, I certainly hope so. That, that's a quick way of starting it. I, I do think that, you know, even as we speak, the president is in Europe. Uh, there's certainly a possibility he will uh, dismantle much of the Western alliance that's been built up over the last 70 years when he says that my easiest uh, meeting will be with Vladimir Putin. That does not reassure me. Part of the problem is is that we've we've moved from a president, uh, President Obama, who was perhaps excessively cerebral in his approach to foreign policy, to a president who is purely glandular in his foreign policy, and that is disturbing. But the topic of my 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 presentation is is, is not just whether we will literally survive because. Uh, you know, hopefully we can we can avert a, a thermonuclear holocaust. You know, God willing, um, but also, do we survive as a as a democratic republic, a liberal constitutional republic? And I think that's one of the things that I've been focusing on because it, it, don't misunderstand me when I say that I am I'm not that bothered by Trump because he is who we thought he was going to be. You know, he's an erratic, narcissistic billionaire who is living his life. 
The real concern is what he's doing to the rest of us, how we are responding, the damage that he will do to the institutions going forward, to our democratic norms going forward. And so what I try to do sometimes is take the frame off of our daily obsession with what the president is tweeting and what he's doing to turn the focus back on the rest of America and ask, okay, how are we going to be changed by four or eight years of Donald Trump? I, I like that approach, and let's pursue that. Where what I'm interested in is whether or not our democracy will survive, whether or not our republic will survive. And let's assume for a moment that it does. And I'm not sure that it will, but let's assume for a moment that it does. What then does that new form? of our republic look like following a Trump administration? What does it look like if he lasts four years and is not reelected? What's it look like if he lasts eight years? Well, we don't know that. And of course, that's, that, that is the big question, Mark. And I, I, let me make the case for optimism first before I make the case for where my, 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 <laughs> my concerns are. The case for optimism is that thus far, uh, the checks and balances have worked, have more or less held him in check. But as he packs have, the court, what well, does exactly. That mean? That's I mean, as as I said, so far. The other point is, look, we're a very resilient people and are a very resilient country. We've been through we've been through worse. We've been through the Civil War. We've been through the Great Depression. We've been through the the you know structural social tearing apart of of the nineteen sixties. We've had bad presidents before. America is nothing if not uh, a culture of renewal. So that is the positive. the The other uh, argument would be that look, we have these pendulums. You know, we will swing one way and then we will swing back, that this is a temporary aberration in American culture. You know, after uh, after uh, the scandals of Richard Nixon, we swung to Jimmy Carter. After Jimmy Carter, we swung to Ronald Reagan back and forth between Bush. So that's the optimistic point that, of view. That, that's true. Well, okay. Let me, let me yeah. before you get to the pessimistic point of view, but right now we are likely to have a conservative court, and if— Trump is reelected, it is likely to get yet more conservative. And even if he's not reelected, it's possibly going to be the case. We have never had a packed court like this. And when this, you talk about a pendulum swinging, which is wonderful, and right. we all like to hear that, know that that's an inevitable truth historically. If we are moving toward a more authoritarian, centralized, presidency Correct. with a packed court supporting that presidency, what then does our democracy look like? Well, yes, th that obviously works against the whole idea of the pendulum. Now, I'm going to get to this in just a little while, but I, I guess I'm not as alarmed as other people are by this because simply because you have a conservative majority, it doesn't tell you what kind of a conservative majority. And it's not a given to me that this court will support the uh, above-the-law authoritarian impulses of this particular president. Uh, Supreme Court justices have uh, a long tradition of taking the institution and taking the rule of law more importantly than the political moment. Um, these are serious, you know, most of the members of this court are still um, serious constitutionalists. Uh, so I would not simply assume that they are going to rubber stamp everything that Donald Trump does any more than Republican-appointed judges in the past uh, were willing to rubber stamp a Richard Nixon or, or whatever. 
but but obviously that's a, that is a major factor. Also, the court is only one of three branches of, of, of government, and I think we have become very obsessed with with the control of the courts in part because of the dysfunction of the other branches of government. But keep in mind, we still have a presidency, we still have a we still have a, a Congress. And then we get to the whole question of, of what is the responsibility of citizens. And I actually heard a, a talk with just the late Justice Scalia, who said, you know, don't, you're making a mistake if you're looking to the court to protect your constitutional rights. You know, we, we only have very, very limited scope. Ultimately, if you're really concerned about these issues of freedom, of the balance of power of the Constitution, um, you as voters are going to have to take more responsibility. The Congress is going to have to step up, and we're going to have to restrain um, the, the out-of-control executive. And, and it, was, it was an interesting point that we tend to outsource some of this responsibility. And that's why one of the things that I'm going to talk about tonight is I do think that, that, that what Trumpism has exposed is this crisis of citizenship. So can I make the pessimistic case that you've already kind of made here for how we, we survive? <laughs> Go ahead. The, the, and, and you've heard me say this before. The, I want to believe that we have a pendulum, but I have the image in my head. I have two other images. I'll, I'll, I'll try both of them. One is the ratchet, that every time we do damage to our political culture, it becomes very, very hard to go back. Once we accept lying, once we accept perjury, you know, it's very, very difficult to go back from that. The other analogy is that we have been this vast, uh, you know, liberal constitutional democratic reservoir where we have had all of these values, all of these traditions, generations who are steeped in our, in our history and the importance of these democratic norms, but that we've been drawing down that reservoir now for decades. And we've gotten to the point where this country would elect Donald Trump as president. They would actually normalize Donald Trump as president, which tells me that the, the level of the reservoir is pretty darn low. What happens when we, in fact, you know, drain that? Because I think here's one of the moments that I think we're all experiencing. That's an alternative definition of draining the swamp. Exactly. It's draining the reservoir of our democratic traditions. And, and one of the things that, that, that and maybe this is the good news, is that you know, this country has been, I think, shocked out of its complacency that we are ex somehow exceptional and immune from history. Now, I do believe we're exceptional, but we're not immune from history. You know, I'll, I think one of the things that we discovered was that a lot of the, the norms that we had taken for granted were really paper thin. Just like I, as a conservative, thought that many of the ideas that we had about the rule of law um, or you know, small government, uh, no deficits, those sorts of things, when push came to shove, they were paper thin above the sort of molten magma of what our politics has really become these days. I, I understand your point about them having been paper thin, but I want to go back to something else, which is also, it seems to me, demonstrating itself to be paper thin. You alluded to the 60s earlier and the social changes and disruptions and then changes that were occurring in that period. And, and they included civil rights for all people. They included a woman's right to choose the, uh, whether to have an abortion or not. They included uh, rights for gay people and, and all kinds of social rights that were enacted and are now being threatened. And is your sense that, and my sense is that that's, another kind of very thin line. And my question to you is, 
are they indeed threatened, especially given the conserv- the socially conservative court? I'm not talking about fiscal conservative. Yeah. I'm not talking about looking at corporations as though they were a human being. I'm talking about the social conservative, so, I'm sorry, social liberal yeah. perspective. Well, I want to leave the race issue aside because I want to talk about that because that I think is, you know, is, is the elephant in the room in a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Right. Um, we're back to the court here. I think it would be very unlikely for them to overturn the, the ruling in gay marriage. I, I, I just don't think that that's on anybody's agenda now. Um, I think that they will probably be more aggressive in carving out exceptions, conscience clause, religious freedom, uh, you know, pr- provisions. But mm-hmm. the actual core of gay rights, I think, is very, very un- unlikely. On Roe versus Wade, I, I, I take the same position on all of this, that, yes, they have five justices, they will, who are potentially, you know, able to do that. I don't think that Justice Roberts... Uh, would want to have a full overturn of Roe versus Wade because I think he is an institutional conservative. In other words, that he would understand the firestorm that this would create and the damage it would do to the institution of the of the Supreme Court. That doesn't mean, though, that you won't have chipping away at reproductive rights or that you won't have modifications. Many of the state laws that have been passed, I think, would now pass muster with with this new court, and you will see those sorts of things. Um, so I, I don't know how activist this court is, is going to be. Brett Kavanaugh strikes me as on the continuum of the people who are on that list, and they were all conservatives, there's no question about it, right. is probably more cautious than some of those other nominees that the president could have taken. But let's talk about the 60s and, and the racial issue. Because, you know, I think, and this is one of the things that as a conservative, I've been trying to, you know, get my head around how did this thing happen? What the hell just happened that Donald Trump comes in and is the nominee of this party? Something that was as unthinkable to me as it was, I think, probably to you at this time. But also watching a party that I thought I understood and, and, and people, allies that I thought, you know, that I also understood, eventually make their peace with him. And you, you go back to the issue of, of race, and the role that the white backlash played in the modern Republican Party. I think I probably misunderstood this more than others because I live in the upper Midwest, and we were part of the, uh, the, the movement that would have been represented by the Jack Kemp's and the Bill Bennett's and the uh-huh. Paul Ryan's, uh-huh. the much more inclusive. We always knew that it was this— What we used to call the Lincoln Republican it, Party. Exactly. And so we always knew— that there was this other element. You know, you're bigoted uncle at Thanksgiving. We always knew that. Right, right. But you always thought that those were the French or that you could ignore them uh, because the calmer heads would prevail. They were sort of the recessive gene in conservatism. But as a result of that, I think we had a fundamental moral failure in not confronting this, not confronting things like the birther movement. And I do think that I'm not saying that, that the vast majority of conservatives or Republicans are racist. I will say this, though, that there's no way that a party could have embraced and nominated Donald Trump unless it was deeply indifferent to those issues of, of race. And this is something that the, that the party and the movement is going to have to struggle with, I think, for a very, very long time now. 
All right, that leads me to another kind of a question, and I'm going to focus in on the Republican Party for a minute. You're an active Republican. You have always been an active— Well, <laughs> no, not now. But you, you, And you are not now because Trump has captured the party. Correct. And what my question is is whether or not Trump having captured the party— Kemp having brought out the latent homophobia, the latent racism, the latent sexism, has that become a permanent fixture of the current Republican Party, or is that, in fact, just a passing fad, quote-unquote? Well, it's, a, it's certainly a, it's a permanent stain on the Republican Party. Um, this was the case that I tried to make in 2016, that, look— um, you know, you will own every slur, every smear, you know, every insult. And, um, you know, a after Donald Trump leaves the political scene, uh, how, does, how does the Republican Party go to African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, Muslim-Americans, you know, young Americans, females, and say, oh, by the way, that wasn't us. You know, we're, 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 we're not— How does it do that? Well, it's I don't know how it does it because, in fact, that is who you are. If, if, in fact, you are there, you know, with your MAGA hats and you are you know, uh, complicit in all of this, you have become this. You have been willing. You've made this Faustian bargain, you know, in order to get these judges, which they wanted very much, the tax cuts, which they wanted very much. But think of all the things that they have been willing to accept and they brought on board. And I do think that uh, just leaving aside just the demographic tsunami that's coming for the Republican Party, this is going to be something that's going to define them for a generation or more, because people are really paying attention to this. Charlie Sykes, conservative commentator and anti-Trump spokesperson. How does the Republican Party passively accept all that Donald Trump is doing? His support within the Republican Party is 90% plus. Everybody understands that. Everybody also understands that he is a bore, that he is absolutely abrasive, that he is egocentric, as you put it. He has the emotional vocabulary of a nine-year-old on the playground. Well, he's a big baby. And, and um, how does um, the Republican Party fall in line with that. Uh, certainly when he was elected, 90% he did not have as a popularity figure within the Republican Party. How is it? What's the Republican Party doing to I think I have an answer combat to, that? I have an answer to you, but I, you have to also just put this in some context. You have to understand that watching this actually happen was the most soul-crushing, disillusioning experience of my lifetime, uh -huh. to watch this happen. Uh -huh. Um, and I've spent a long time figuring out how, you know, why do people as fundamentally, and I, I'll get some pushback on this, but as a fundamentally, de I think Paul Ryan is a fundamentally decent person who's made some very, very bad choices. But there are several reasons why the Republican Party has, you know, fallen in line with him. Number one, of course, there is just the tribalism of American politics these days. Mm -hmm. The politics is not about ideas. It's about, you know, blue and red identity. And um, he inherited this, this sense of this blue-red divide that we have created in this country, how the, the choice between him and Hillary Clinton was binary. But, you know, so, and, and then there are the just cult of personality Trump supporters, but they're probably about 20% of the electorate, probably about half of the Republican electorate, and this is, I'm just, I'm just being very generalized here. 
The other part of the Republican Party, which is just as, in some cases, soul-crushing, are the people who would agree with everything you just said describing Donald Trump. They would not dispute any of that. But what they would say is, yes, but we have to you know, deal with the reality as it is. And from Donald Trump, we are getting things that we never would have gotten from Hillary Clinton. We're getting a conservative Supreme Court. You know, this is something we have dreamed of for years. We got our tax cuts. We're getting regulatory reform. So it is transactional. And let's face it, you know, Washington is a city that runs on transactionalism. And maybe it's naive to think that people would stand on principle, you know, for fundamental decency when, in fact, they had the allure of the power and the, and the celebrity. Not to mention the fact that we live in a media environment in which if you are a Trump supporter, you can— you can, you can isolate yourself from much of the negative information. You can, you can find your safe spaces where Donald Trump is, is not the narcissistic boor that, that we often see, but is in fact one of the great champions of America first. So we have these things. I think it is the tribalism. I think it is the alternative reality silos we, we've created. And it is the very deep, um, and I would say rational, but very cynical transactionalism. And the problem with transactionalism, and I've talked with Paul Ryan about this, we're, we're, we've known each other for many years, that in the beginning it's like, okay, I have to support him because he will sign the bills that we will put on his desk and Hillary Clinton won't. So you make that rational calculation, but then the price tag goes up and up and up. What you have to swallow, what you have to enable, what you have to go along with. And I think the part of the problem is once you've sold 40% of your soul, what does it take for that next 10%? I'm not going to answer that question, rhetorical though it is, um, but what I will do is turn it around and ask you as a Lincoln-esque Republican in the sense that we were talking about it before, what are you and your cohorts, your compatriots doing to recapture a decent Republican party? Well, the first thing is to acknowledge is, is how much in the wilderness we are and how much of a minority. Uh, you know, you hear the phrase never Trump or Trump skeptics in the, in the Republican Party, in the conservative movement. And we are a very, very small minority. And, and, I, I, and I, I, I don't make any bones about all of that. I mean, I knew after the election that we were going to go off into the wilderness. I did not know that it was going to be such a small desert island with just a handful of us. And we all know one another. That's part of the problem. There are some who have simply left the conservative movement, who have left the Republican Party completely. There are and others, where did they go? Well, like Max Boot and, and George Will are saying they're going to vote for Democrats. And I, and I respect these gentlemen tremendously. Then there are others, like Bill Kristol, who are saying, look, I, I understand your point, but this country needs two rational political parties. And if we all leave, then we just have left the, you know, one of the, the nation's major political parties in the hands of the crazies. What if there's a third independent political party? Does that provide a home for the Lincoln-esque Republicans? Does that also have an impact, a political impact on the Republican Party? And if so, what is it? I think that may happen. Um, I, uh, you know, he, 2016 was the perfect year for a third party to emerge, and it didn't emerge. You had the t you know, two most toxic political candidates, never nominated by either political party. So if, if with, when you're faced with Clinton versus Trump, if you don't get a third party major candidate, then when would you? 
But I do think that there's a possibility that there will be people who will, will step aside and say, look, we need to have a third way. We need to break this binary choice in, in American politics. And I would, be, I would be supportive of all that. But there's a, there's a significant debate, um, and, and I think it's a real debate, about whether the Republican Party can be salvaged or whether it's too far gone, whether it has already corrupted itself to the point where it is not recoverable. And, I, and there are people who I respect very much who make that point. Charlie Sykes, again, conservative commentator. What is your take on the effect an independent party would have on the Republican Party? I don't know at this point because we are, we are so built into this, this two-party system. We are not like France. We are not like Great Britain where they have a system that, that allows multiple parties to, to, to develop. But I do think that you need an outlet for Republicans for conservatives, let me put it that way, for, for conservatives who still believe in fundamental decency, who believe in the rule of law, center-right people who, uh, who are appalled by the you know, cascade of lies. Uh, I think George Will referred to Donald Trump as a Vesuvius of mendacities. There's <laughs> got to be a place for, for us to go where we are not simply you know, given the choice, you either swallow Trump or you vote for somebody that you fundamentally disagree with, you know, you, you vote for Bernie Sanders. So I do think, I actually th- see politics right now as kind of a Venn diagram, where there's not a lot of overlap between right and left, but there is some overlap between center left and center right on this coalition of the decent, on the belief in the rule of law, in, you know, su- support of, of, of truth and somehow a return to some of the democratic norms. I do hope that there's a home for those of us that that can have that kind of a dialogue because otherwise we're just out. Well, again, I would repeat the question if there is a place, is there a place for a center left, center right coalition, which you've spoken about and Kasich and Hickenlooper, for example, seem to me to on each party represent that coalition, if you will. What effect, if there, they, that emerges, does it have on the Republican Party? I don't know. Does it make it a minority party? It, it could. Um, you know, I mean, these things, these things are all crapshoots. A third party could actually allow a Donald Trump who's only got a 40% approval rating to be reelected. That could certainly happen. It could split the Republican vote. I'm just, I'm just not sure. You could certainly see a moment in 2020 where a charismatic, uh, centrist third choice— arises and said, are you, are you sick of all of this? And breaks through a la you know, Emmanuel Macron. But I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical about it. Cer- certainly, historically, third parties have not done well in this country. That is clearly our history. Um, with that said, Charles Sykes, it is a pleasure to have you on the air with us. I really appreciate your insights and your perspective. Thank you for joining us on Outside In. Well, thank you for the invitation. I always enjoy intelligent conversations. You've been listening to Outside In, an original production of KBUT. Hosted by Roger Kahn and produced and engineered by Mark Dugan. Hear archived episodes at kbut.org. Just look under the Programs tab.